Well, if you haven't guessed from the themes that have been woven through, the prayers and the scripture that was read earlier, um, our focus this morning is our finances. So I was spending my week this week um, reflecting on finances and reading uh, commentaries and scripture on on money and our relationship to our money and uh, you know, sometimes would go down rabbit trails and ended up on the internet looking at stories about all of these people who were just insanely, incredibly generous and doing incredible things for the Lord with their financial resources. And I was like, well, maybe not for the Lord, but I'm going to trust for the Lord, even if they wouldn't say that. I don't know if Matt Damon is a believer or not, but I was on his website, water.org, and learning about the work that he is doing through that organization and um, was feeling very inspired to live generously. And then I took a break at one point and walked downstairs. We live with my parents and walked into the office to talk to them for a moment. And my mom was like, oh, Summer, we got our Costco rebate check in the mail, 400 and something dollars. You know, what do you want to do with it? And immediately, everything I had just been feeling and living in the midst of, (laughs) out the window as we began talking about putting in a new patio or buying some lawn furniture, any new appliances that we need. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, and we can laugh at that. And yet, I think if we're honest, each one of us find ourselves going to that place perpetually. We feel inspired by the needs of the world. Something evokes in us a feeling of generosity. And then the moment later, that is replaced by our own selfish desires. We justify our need for more often by comparing ourselves to the people around us, don't we? But the reality is that most of us have settled into places in life where we have surrounded ourselves by people who are very much in our economic situation. And so I justify our need for a new patio by looking across the street at the people across the street that have a beautiful acre, you know, landscaped yard, so why can't we have a new patio and replace the moss-covered, bumpy thing in our backyard, right? But the reality is, if we compare ourselves on the world stage, each and every one of us is wealthy. Money tends to be one of those things that we don't talk about. It has kind of, it's understood that that is a private matter. We don't talk about our salaries. We don't talk about the prices of our homes. We don't talk about how much we give to charity. But this morning, we are going to talk about money. Because God cares about our relationship to money. And our relationship to money is a spiritual matter. There is a disproportionate amount of scripture that is devoted to money and our relationship to money. And this is because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And God knows that we have a tendency to make money into an idol. To replace our worship of God, our reliance on God, with the reliance on our financial resources. So this morning we are going to follow the lead of our Lord, and we are going to focus on our finances for a little while. Let me pray for us as we dive in. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear from you this morning. This is a topic that we hold close. And I have to wonder if some of that 
um, is because of the guilt and the shame that is often associated with money and how we use our money, not wanting to be judged by others. But Lord, we do trust that you have a word for us this morning, and we ask that you would open our hearts, that if there are places where our finances have an unhealthy hold on us, that you would give us the humility to see that and to hear from you this morning. We pray that you would lead us towards a better way. Amen. Well, we have been preaching through the Gospel of Luke, looking at different stories in the life of Jesus. And so this morning, we're, we've come to Luke chapter 12. And at this point, Jesus um, is surrounded by what they say is a crowd of thousands of people. And he has been teaching um, kind of his smaller group of disciples in the presence of this vast crowd on the importance of relying on the Holy Spirit. So that has been what he's been talking about. But then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Jesus gets a question lobbed at him from the crowd, a request from someone, a, someone listening to arbitrate a dispute with a family member about an inheritance. So here Jesus has been speaking about relying on the Holy Spirit, and yet clearly there has been someone in the crowd completely distracted by their financial situation, has not paid any attention to what Jesus is saying, and just needs Jesus to engage his issue. But instead of stepping into the middle of a family dispute, Jesus instead sees this man's heart. And we see this happen over and over again in Jesus' ministry. This is the level that people are existing at, but Jesus sees down below and understands what is going on at the heart level. And so Jesus sees that this man is in the grip of money. Money has an unhealthy grip on him. And so Jesus instead chooses to address this. Because Jesus believes that this man's relationship to money is a spiritual matter. This man has begun worshiping his money, trusting his money, instead of trusting God. And so that is what Jesus speaks to. So I'm going to read a few verses in Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. It should also be on the screen behind me. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich towards God. We could so easily retell that parable in today's terms. That could be a story of something happening right here in Seattle. Well, there are a few things that stand out to me about the rich man in this story. 
The first one is that he never sees beyond himself, does he? If we look at the pronouns in the story, I, me, my, mine, my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, he shows no awareness of the concept of stewardship, does he? Or any responsibility toward others as a result of his wealth. No, he has earned it. And so he sees himself as fully justified in using his resources for his benefit. Eat, drink, and be merry, he says. But the second thing I see is that he never sees beyond this world. He has forgotten the ending of the saying that he himself quotes, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that is exactly what happens to this man in the story. He's busy stockpiling possessions in this life, building bigger and bigger barns to store all of his stuff when he's about to be taken into the next life where none of that can go with him. There's another story that Jesus tells a bit later in Luke where another rich man also enjoys his earthly wealth, lives in luxury while all the while walking past the beggar's at his gates. But in that story, we're given a window into his fate after death. And what we see is a man stripped of all of his wealth, suffering the fires of Hades, and actually crying out, begging for the beggar to help him. Total reversal of fortunes in the life to come. But this man doesn't see past death. Another thing is that he fails to recognize the fleetingness and the fragility of his wealth, doesn't he? I preached on finances a while back, and as I was reflecting then, um, Imelda Marcos and her amazing shoe collection came to my mind. And I remember at that point doing a little Googling, um, because I just wanted to remind myself of that story. She was the former wife of the president of the Philippines, and I think she's still in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the largest collection of shoes, well, we, that story did not end well. I think they both ended up in prison. And as I was researching, what I found was that they basically cordoned off their palace as um, a monument or a museum. They didn't allow anyone to enter it for a number of years. And when they finally did go in, the roof had sprung a leak. And between termites and mildew, their entire fortune, all of her shoes, just decimated. Wealth is fleeting. This man shows no awareness of how quickly all of that grain that he is stockpiling could simply be gone. And finally, this rich fool bought into the lie that money satisfies, right? And yet he was never satisfied, never content. He was always frantic, tearing down barns and building bigger barns in order to be able to store away his harvest and then he died. I came across this phrase this week. Money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Yeah. Yeah. The more you get drink, the thirstier you get. New York Times Magazine had an article this last month that was titled, Wealthy, Successful, and Miserable. And it claims that a substantial... Um, number of wealthy are actually becoming increasingly discontent. And it asks the question, why? And here are some of the different reasons for the discontent that people gave, the oppressive hours that they are working, 
political infighting that they're experiencing in their place of work, increased competition sparked by the globalizing economy, having to always be on because of technology, our smartphones that are with us always, and a sense that their work isn't worth all that they're giving it. And what they found as they interviewed people was that what really seemed to matter to folks was basic financial security, knowing that they had enough to take care of their family, to keep their home, job security, trusting that they would have a job to go to the next day and the day after that, having some level of control and authority in their work, working with people that you respect, and feeling that your work is meaningful. These are the things that seemed to significantly contribute to people's happiness. And studies show that if those needs are met, then additional salary and benefits don't really significantly increase people's happiness or their quality of life. And yet, so many of us sacrifice so much working towards that next promotion, that next race, to do well on that next performance review, believing that if we can just get to that next milestone, things will be better. We will have arrived. We will be more comfortable, more happy. But the studies show that that's not true. Money is bloodthirsty. It demands more and more from us, always asking for greater and greater sacrifice in pursuit of comfort and control and contentment and happiness. But the reality is that the, the harder we pursue money as the answer to all of that, the more those very things, comfort, control, contentment, happiness, are actually stripped away. So Jesus' parable of the rich fool offers us a chance to reflect on our own lives. Where have we been stockpiling wealth in bigger and bigger barns? Where has our focus been, like the rich fool, too much on ourselves? Well, after the parable of the rich fool, Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to urge them not to worry about what they will eat or what they will wear. And we have to remember that these guys left everything to follow him, these people. Storing excess away in barns is not their problem. But even those without money can have an unhealthy obsession with it, can't we? Perhaps you know someone like that. Perhaps you are that person. Someone who is always fretting over every nickel and dime that is spent. Obsessing about saving, about not spending. This person, like the rich man, may still be completely absorbed with money. Money can be an idol for us, whether we have much or little. But in either one of these cases, Jesus wants to help us see so that we, he can shift our focus, our worship, back to himself. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, talks about the idea of deep idols. And this was a helpful thing for me to ponder. 
this week. So he says that deep idols are often hidden beneath the more visible idols, like money or sex or kids. But he says that deep idols are they're things like power or approval or comfort or control. There's these heart-level needs that we attempt to fill through these more surface, these more visible idols. So what, what is the deep idol in your life? What is the, the thing that you need so deeply that you will orchestrate all of life in order to gain that thing? For me, it is control. Control, control, control. I need to know that my life is managed, that I can count on things being a certain way. So I will organize my schedule, I will organize my finances, all to ensure that there is security and control in my life. Well, depending on which deep idol has you in its grip, how you interact with money may look radically different. If money is a way of control for you, then maybe you don't spend it. You may be inclined to save it away, to keep it invested, to live modestly so that you know that you have it there to control your future. If money for you is a way of gaining acceptance or approval, entry into social circles, then you will live much differently in your relationship to money. You may live lavishly, giving it away, spending it on yourself, spending it on others. But in either case, money is an idol serving that deeper idol. The way that we interact with money may very well be a symptom of a deeper idol's hold on us. And so we can't simply deal with the idol of money in our life by eliminating money. We have to deal with the underlying idols, the deeper idols, before our relationship to money will change. But we are, at our very core, worshipers. Human beings, at our essence, are worshipers. We will always find something to worship. And so the only effective way to get rid of an idol a surface idol, a deep idol, is to replace it. We can't just eliminate, we have to replace because we are going to worship something. (laughs) And so the key to trusting God with our finances is shifting our focus. Shifting our focus from our finances to the Father. Shifting our focus from our bank accounts, how much we have, to the God who gives us everything that we have who extravagantly provides for every little bit of his creation. Shifting our focus to the God who loves us so immensely that he gave his only son to death on a cross so that we could live in the lavish wealth of a relationship with him. The key to loosening money's grip on us is intentionally making the choice to pursue a relationship with God. The solution to stinginess is reorientation to the generosity of Jesus. Now there is a person in scripture that I think um, is a beautiful example of the 
change that can happen in a person when that reorientation takes place, and that person is Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus was the top tax collector in his region. He was a Jew. He was employed by the Roman government to extract taxes from his Jewish brothers and sisters for the benefit of Rome. Now, clearly, that was not a job that would naturally be sought after by Jews. And so Rome sweetened the pot by saying, you can raise the tax rate as high as you want and pocket that extra if you will do this. And so Zacchaeus had become immensely wealthy at the expense of his Jewish neighbors, taking their wealth and giving it to Rome. So his people, his neighbors, hate him. They hate him as a traitor. They hate his wealth, which has been gained at their expense. But Zacchaeus is so under the spell of money at the beginning of the story that he doesn't care about anything else until he has an encounter with Jesus, right? He hears that Jesus is coming into town, and we don't get insight into what happens in his heart. And yet the moment that Jesus walks into town, Zacchaeus is willing to sacrifice everything, his very dignity, to have an encounter with Jesus. He scrambles up a tree, completely undignified, in order to just see Jesus. And Jesus sees him, calls him down. They have an exchange And in that moment, in that encounter with Jesus, everything changes for Zacchaeus. Suddenly in that moment, he discovers that his identity, his value, his worth is not in what he has, in how much he has. Those things are are because he's loved by Jesus. And so suddenly, as his identity and security become rooted in that relationship, he discovers that he has way more money than he needs. And his grip releases, and he just begins throwing it away. Half of his wealth he gives away in that moment. He promises to pay back anyone that he has robbed fourfold. Suddenly, it doesn't matter anymore. Because his focus has shifted from his wealth to a relationship with Jesus. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Do we believe that? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That means that we are simply stewards. Everything that we have is the Lord's. We are simply put in charge as stewards over it. This means that your apartment is the Lord's, your house, the trees in your yard, the grass that you mow, the gardens that you plant. These are the Lord's. The clothes that you're wearing, the clothes in your closet, these are the Lord's. Your cabinets, the books on your shelf. Everything that you own is the Lord's. The house that you live in was called mine by somebody else a few short years ago. And chances are, a few short years from now, someone else is going to be calling that same house mine. We are stewards for a short time of what belongs to God for all time. 
In the Old Testament, we have the story of Joseph, who's sold into slavery by his brothers. But he quickly works his way up until he is the steward in Potiphar's household. And his job as a steward is to spend Potiphar's resources in the best interest of Potiphar. So Joseph can use what he needs for himself, but he has to make a decision, is this necessary? Because this is Potiphar's money. And I, my job is to use Potiphar's resources in pursuit of Potiphar's best interests. Well, this is what we are called to do. Do we view what we have as primarily God's? We say those words before we take the offering every Sunday. You know, Lord, you've given us everything that we have, and now we give back to you a portion of that, and we ask you to use it. Do we really believe, though, that the paycheck that comes into our account twice, once a month, is the Lord's? I think most of us ask the question, how much of my money should I give? And 10% is like this mythical goal, right? This, this is, uh, we've attained you know, sainthood if we are giving 10% of our resources. But in actuality, I think the question that we should be asking is, how much of God's money should I keep? What would change if even us here in this room began to ask that question? How much of God's resources should I keep? What would be freed up then to pursue God's interests in Greenwood, in Seattle? I think we'd realize that we could do a ton as a relatively small congregation. That we, I don't think any of us are living hugely lavish lives. And yet I think that we are the rich fool in this story building bigger and bigger barns to store away just in case. What would it look like if we trusted God to provide and used the resources that he has given us for God's purposes? This is the first Sunday of Lent, and Lent is a season in the church calendar devoted to preparing for Easter by remembering Jesus suffering, and by repenting of behaviors and attitudes that grieve God. And so I think this is an ideal time to think about our relationship to our finances, something that is so deep in our hearts. And so as we prepare to come to the table this morning, I want to lead us just in a short meditation on this story. So I want to invite you to close your eyes. And I want to picture yourself, I want you to picture yourself as one of the people in the crowd. As Jesus is telling the story of the rich fool. I want you to picture Jesus' gaze turning to you. And you calling out to him. You say, Jesus... I am trying to honor you with my money. But I have blind spots. I have places that I rationalize and justify spending my money, keeping my money. Jesus, would you open my eyes to these places? 
Where am I not stewarding your resources the way that you want me to steward them? Where are you inviting me to be more generous 